Good morning, everybody. Hey, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 7. And I'm going to pray, Father in heaven, we're so grateful for another opportunity to come and, and the greatness of, uh, of this world that you've made and the greatness of all that Jesus has done for us. We want to sit now, Lord, with a calm hearts and open minds to receive what you have to speak to us through your word. I ask, God, that you would speak in power, above, beyond, around, any words that I say. I pray that people would hear your voice and pay attention to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been making our way chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus. And Exodus, of course, is the story. I don't mean to give you a spoiler for this. I mean, I think many of you know this. They end up getting out of Egypt and going on the way to the promised land. Did that spoil it for anybody here? But no, they really do. They're on their way out of Egypt. They're going to get out in later chapters, and we'll see this. And and the book of Exodus will end with them not being in the promised land yet. That doesn't happen until the days of Joshua. But at least they're going to make themselves fully out of Egypt and all the way to Mount Sinai when we end the book of Exodus. Now, beyond and around and surrounding all that, we see this as being a remarkable work of redemption that God did on behalf of his people. There, the the children of Israel were in slavery. They were in bondage. They were in degradation. They were under the the leadership of a cruel Pharaoh who hated their guts and, and sort of rejoiced in the idea that they were suffering. And the story of Exodus is the tremendous story of how God set his people free. He won freedom and redemption and deliverance for them. Now, the great news about that is that throughout the Old Testament, After the exodus, God kept reminding them of what he did. Over and over again, you'll see the phrase repeated in the Old Testament. I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. Just to emphasize, I've redeemed you, now you belong to me. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that this translates over into a New Testament context in light of the work of Jesus on our behalf in a very powerful way? Because the Lord says the same thing to us. Now, I'll speak to you all this morning as if you're followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not. Maybe you haven't put your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. Maybe you haven't done that yet. But I pray that maybe this morning you would. You would say, I want to repent and I want to believe on Jesus. But, but when we do that, when we become followers of Jesus, he sets us free just as much as he brought Israel out of their slavery. And constantly God points back to the work that did that on our behalf. He says, I'm the God who purchased you at the cross. Jesus died for your sin. Remember that central work of redemption on your behalf. So when we're studying the book of Exodus, it's not just a fascinating story that we all enjoy and get a lot out of. This speaks to God's work in our lives right here, right now, fulfilled in the perfect work of Jesus. Now, Moses was God's special representative to go and to confront Pharaoh in the bondage over which he held the children of Israel. And so we bring to it now, Exodus chapter 7, starting at verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. Now, just as chapter 6 ended, Moses was in another one of his contentions with God. 
feeling unworthy, feeling incapable, feeling like he couldn't really do the work. And I love it. It's as if God just ignored all of Moses' protests and said, get back in the game. Sort of like a coach would deal with a discouraged athlete who says, I can't do it. They're beating me up out there. I, I can't do it. He just get out there and start it up again. You can do this. Just get back into the game. And he's going to send him back out against Pharaoh. But notice, he wants him to go out there with a particular mentality. And the mentality is reflected right there in verse 1, where it says very plainly, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. You see, I find it fascinating that Pharaoh, in a previous confrontation with Moses, rejected any direct dealing with God. Matter of fact, the Lord came, or the Lord spoke to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is recorded in Exodus 5.2, where he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? It's as if he said this to Moses. Moses, you come to me speaking in the name of Yahweh. I don't even know who this Yahweh is. I know who all these gods of the Egyptians are. We've got dozens of them. But this Yahweh, this God of Israel, I don't know who he is. I don't care. And it's as if God says this. Okay, he doesn't know me, Moses, but he knows you. You are going to represent me before Pharaoh. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that God does something very similar with our lives today? That this idea carries over into the New Testament where God says that his people represent him on this earth. And that's a very challenging thing. I like how the New Testament puts it. The Apostle Paul, of course, many centuries after the time of Moses, he sort of put it in this way. He said that believers are like letters written by Jesus that the whole world reads. If you want to make a notation of that, I won't go over the passage, but that passage is contained in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where Paul gives this idea that we are like letters written by Jesus that the whole world reads. And you know what that says to you and I? It says simply this. People that won't look to God will look to us. People that won't read the Bible will read our lives. I don't know about you, but I find that frustrating. Because I realize, to understate it slightly... I am not a perfect representation of God. You laughed that I said slightly. I say my wife is laughing more than anybody else. Okay, you get the idea here. I'm not a perfect representation of God, and of course, neither are you. I am not a perfect Bible for people to read, and neither are you. And there's something within me and within you that rightfully says, don't look at me, look to Jesus. Don't read my life, read the Bible. And that's a good message for us to give to people. People should look to Jesus directly. People should read the Bible for themselves. But you know what? Oftentimes they just won't. They just won't. They refuse to think it's real until they see it real in your life. And that is by analogy what God was doing with Moses before Pharaoh, telling him essentially in verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you. Get in there and do it. So this is what he was going to do. Now, verse 3, God did not want Moses to be under any misconception. He says here, verse 3, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Did you notice what he said there in verse 3? God says very plainly, very straightforwardly, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, it's not the first time the book of Exodus told us this. Back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 we remember that God also said he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And we dealt with it back then. 
we dealt with that idea of what it means when God hardens a person's heart. And friends, I don't want to undersell it. I don't want to act, well, no, God didn't do anything. No. Do you know what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It means that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's something for us to be aware of, that God would actually do this. But what we looked at last time in Exodus chapter 4 is a very important principle. That God did not harden Pharaoh's heart against Pharaoh's will. It was not as if, oh, Pharaoh's heart was overflowing with love and kindness towards the people of Israel. And God somehow hardened a heart that was soft. No, Pharaoh's heart was already filled with hatred and bitterness towards Israel. And God said, Pharaoh, if that's the way you're going to be, then fine. I'll confirm you in that. I'll harden it right along with what you desire. That's common for people today to wonder if God does the same work. Let me put it to you this way. We can say that if someone is determined to reject God, God may in fact give that person what they want. Isn't that a little bit frightening? If you're here this morning determined to reject God, you say, listen, I I don't know whatever reason I'm here. I got dragged. I got friends. I got family. I'm here. But no, I'm not part of this. I'm not buying into this. I'm not going to repent and believe and put my, my trust in who Jesus is and what he did for me on the cross. If you're determined to harden yourself against God, you know what God will do in his judgment? He'll say, okay. Okay, matter of fact, God may even give you exactly what you want. You don't want God? You you want to push him away? You, You don't want him on his terms, only on your terms? When you push God away, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that ultimately speaking, that's what an eternity separated from God is. It's the expression of a heart that says, I don't want God, and God honoring that desire. I don't know what we're waiting for. Do do we really think that someone can rightfully object to God giving somebody what they want? Do we really expect that God would make somebody love him against their will? No, ladies and gentlemen, this idea of a hard heart is a heavy thing for us to consider because I wonder if there's not a few people here this morning and you're wondering, is my heart becoming hard? Is my heart strengthening in its opposition to God? And that is one of the great dangers to delaying a commitment to Jesus Christ, to delaying your surrender to him because this is how you think. You think, well, I can always do it later. Young people especially think this. They think, okay, these are my years to have fun. And well, following Jesus, that's not fun. I'm not even going to talk about that, but just you, this is how many people think. Well, that, I'll, I'll sow my wild oats. I'll have my fun. And then, you know, later when I'm old, you know, later when, when all the fun has already gone out of my life, then I'll be a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is one of the one of the many great errors you make in that kind of thinking. You fail to forget. You fail to remember, I should say, that your heart will grow harder every time you reject God. Your heart will go harder every time you refuse to submit to him. And this is why God challenges us to say surrender to him today. Nevertheless, look at God's mercy even to the hardened ones. It's at the end of verse 3. He says this, yes, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, but look at the end of verse 3, and I'll multiply my signs and wonders in the land. In other words, God says, even in the midst while Pharaoh's heart is being hardened and I'm hardening it, I'm going to give him some reason to believe. I'm going to do some astounding miracles right before his eyes that if only Pharaoh would want to believe for a moment, he could say, yes, yes, 
God is true, the Lord God of Israel. He's the right one. He's the Lord God. So he was giving Pharaoh the opportunity to believe if he would only choose to. And I believe that's the way it is for you and I and other people we rub our shoulders with. God gives you reason to believe. Don't you think that he does? Hasn't God done things in your life, in and around and through your life, that gives you real reason to believe? And he holds it out before you and says, now you can do it. Now you can embrace it. Now you can believe. That's exactly what he was doing for Pharaoh. Well, now he's going to go on and explain, starting in verse 4, why he will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is what he says. He says, but Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded, so they did. And Aaron, excuse me, and Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Again, God's emphasizing it to Moses and Aaron. You're going to go appear before Pharaoh again, but he's not going to listen to you. But what's the result going to be? Verse five. Did you notice this? And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This explains why God was doing this so dramatically. Now, again, I don't want to bring out the big spoilers. We're just going to see the first of the plagues here this morning. But next week, we'll see the other plagues. God is going to send a spectacular series of plagues upon Egypt. He's going to do it because Pharaoh's heart is hard, but he's also going to do it because he wants to glorify himself among the Egyptians. And this explains why. God wanted the Egyptians to know that he was the Lord. You're rejecting me, but I'm going to reveal myself. And this is exactly what God was doing. God planned to do his work so that the Egyptians would see that he is the Lord. And might I say that God does the same work among the church today. He displays his wisdom by the church to angelic beings. That's a provocative thought and one I'm not going to talk any more about right now. But Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 tells us that God uses the church to display his wisdom to angelic beings. God also does the same, not only in the church as a whole, but in individual lives. He displays his goodness, his power in your life to an onlooking world. I know we've touched on this, but it bears repeating. F.B. Meyer said it this way. He said, believers are the world's Bibles by studying which men may come to know the Lord himself. Ladies and gentlemen, people are reading your life. Here's kind of the question. Is it a good translation? (laughs) You may know that there's a lot of different Bible translations out there, and this confuses people. They wonder, well, what's a good translation? What's a bad translation? And there are many good Bible translations out there. Some are better than others. But ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that there are some lives out there that are pretty bad translations of God's work? He wants us to be a faithful, faithful example of what he's doing. Now, starting with this chapter and going on to the next week and the next several chapters, there's going to be many miraculous and terrible plagues that come upon the Egyptians. And one of the reasons God sent these plagues was so that the Egyptians would believe on him. I'll say it again. One of the reasons God sent these plagues was that the Egyptians would have their confidence in their own God shattered and that they would believe on him. And you want to know the good news? Many Egyptians did. Many Egyptians repented and believed on the Lord God of Israel. How do I know this? I'm 
glad you asked that question because Exodus chapter 12, verse 36 tells us that some, perhaps many, oh, by the way, it's verse 38, Exodus 12, 38. It tells us that some, perhaps many Egyptians went with Israel as they left and they left Egypt as a mixed multitude. Do you understand that? One of the reasons God sent these plagues was out of mercy. He wanted to see Egyptians delivered from their own bondage to these Egyptian fake deities. And so he sent the plagues to shatter their confidence in the deities and say, you come with my people as they come out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's the whole effect that God wants to do here. Let's see how the story continues. Verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show me a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Isn't this interesting? Moses, get back in the game. Oh, God, you know what happened the last time we asked Pharaoh? He just said no, and it didn't go very good. He just made it worse for the Israelites. I don't care. Get back in the game. Go talk to Pharaoh again. Okay. And this time I want you to come ready to do a miracle. Now, if you remember, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him the sign of Moses throwing down his rod, his staff, and it became a serpent. And then God told him, pick up the serpent. He picked it up by the tail, and it became a staff again. God gave Moses that sign to take to the elders of Israel so that the elders of Israel would know that Moses truly represented the Lord. Now God was having Moses and Aaron take a similar miracle before Pharaoh. But I want to contrast the two just a little bit. You see, when Moses did it, it was Moses' rod, and he threw it down, and it became a serpent. When Aaron did it, Aaron threw down his rod in the presence of Pharaoh, and it became a a different kind of serpent. I don't mean to get all intricate with the original Greek because original Hebrew, excuse me, because the Old Testament's written in Hebrew and I can't read Hebrew myself, but but I can read people who can read Hebrew. This is what they tell me. The people who can read, read Hebrew tell me that there's a different Hebrew word used for serpent back in Exodus chapter four and now for serpent used here in Exodus chapter seven. The word used in Exodus chapter 4 from Moses' rod just describes a serpent, a snake, just like you would think of it. The word used for serpent here describes something like a crocodile. Some reptile that's a little bit more radical in its appearance, not just a regular snake. So do you see what happens? God says to Moses and Aaron, go cast down your rod before Pharaoh. It's going to turn into a crocodile. You do this, and then Pharaoh will see this. So they go in and do it. They throw it down. You've got to admit Moses and Aaron think, this one is pretty good. This is even better than a snake. You just watch this, Pharaoh. Go and throw down the rod, and bam, there's some kind of crocodile there. And this is especially relevant because a crocodile was sort of a national symbol for the Egyptians. You know, just like different countries symbolize themselves, think of themselves with different animals. It's always majestic animals, right? Bears, bulldogs, bald eagles, you know, always majestic, mighty animals. And the Egyptians often represented themselves with a crocodile. So it seemed kind of fitting. Bam, there's a crocodile right there on the floor. Well, look what happens. See how impressed Pharaoh is. Verse 11. But Pharaoh called his wise men and the sorcerers of the magicians of Egypt. And they also did likewise in the manner with their enchantments. 
For every man threw down his rod and became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see what's going on here? Pharaoh snaps his fingers, bring me the Egyptians, bring me the enchanters, bring me the sorcerers. And they came in and there was a long history of sorcery and enchantment and association with the dark arts in Egypt. You can find evidence in the ancient documents and hieroglyphics and all the rest. Of Egypt. Oh, yes, they knew these satanic and demonic sources of power. So it should not surprise us at all that there were some people, so to speak, I'm using just a figure of speech, but there were people on the devil's payroll there and they came out as Pharaoh's sorcerers and enchanters and they felt that they could do the same thing. By the way, you might be interested that 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 7 and 9 tell us that these men were named Janus and Jambres and that they were examples of men who were educated and intelligent, but they weren't wise after the things of God. So Janus and Jambres come out and they say, no problem, Pharaoh, we can do the same kind of miracles. And they threw down their rods and they became something like crocodiles as well. Wasn't that remarkable? Right there in Pharaoh's presence. You, you got two sets of crocodiles here. You got Aaron's crocodile and you got uh, the, the magicians, the enchanters crocodiles. And then what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. They ate the crocodiles up. Mo, excuse me, Aaron's crocodile ate up the other ones. Right in front of Pharaoh's eyes. Make no mistake about it. You and I, we read this, it makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Makes me uncomfortable. I'm entirely comfortable with the idea of God doing such a strange, radical miracle as this throw down the rod and it becomes a crocodile. Okay, God, you can do that. You're anything. It bothers me just a little bit to think that such satanic power could be in the hands of men who could do things like that. Now, I know that there's some people who believe that these were not supernatural things at all, that when the magicians of Egypt did this, they were just using some kind of sleight of hand. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if they had a crocodile up their robe or something like that and threw it out. I I don't know. But magicians can do weird things. I mean, I'm not saying it's 100% impossible, but it doesn't read that way to me. It reads to me that there was some supernatural thing going on here. Because, ladies and gentlemen, you should know this, that the Bible tells us that there's a such thing as satanic power, that there's a such thing as either miracles or apparent miracles that can be done by the powers of darkness. And this makes us a little bit nervous, doesn't it? It should. It should make you a little bit wary of trusting too much in the merely miraculous Paul brought this point home with a lot of power in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what he wrote. He said that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. Now, I believe Paul spoke of a coming lawless one who has yet to appear on the world scene, this ultimate adversary and messenger of Satan who had come against God and against his people. That has yet to come. But the same spirit that will be manifest in that ultimate lawless one was back with these magicians from Egypt having some kind of supernatural power. This is the takeaway from this, friends. It means that miracles can prove that something is supernatural, but they don't necessarily prove that something is true. And just keep that separated in your mind. Now notice this. 
They throw down the rods, and Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them. Now, I don't know what this looked like. I know what it looked like in the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yule Brenner. If you got an extra four hours this week, watch the Ten Commandments. And I mean that. It's a four-hour movie. You might not want to take it all in one chunk. You might want to separate it into two or three or four different viewings because it's a four-hour movie. But it's a dramatic scene. There's Charlton Heston with his staff right there in front of Pharaoh, played by Yule Brenner. Beautifully done movie. And there's Charlton. He throws it down. And the magicians throw theirs down. And the snake or the serpent, they use the serpent and that. We think it was a crocodile, but he swallowed up the others. I want you to notice what it says specifically in verses 12 and 13. It says that Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. I don't know if it swallowed up while it looked like a crocodile or like a rod. But whatever it was, God was demonstrating something. No matter what you do, devil, I'm more powerful. You, you show your miracles, you show your sleight of hand, whatever it is, but I've got more power. This should have been an incredible testimony to Pharaoh right then and there. Yes, your enchanters can do some things. And whether they do them as parlor tricks or supernatural occurrences, it doesn't really matter. But I'm going to demonstrate that I'm greater than you. Please notice, it wasn't that the magicians ate up the Aaron's rod. It went the other way around. God showed, I'm mightier than you. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a little lesson in there. If you and I will grab onto it. And the lesson is just this. Nobody here should doubt the power of God. I can just imagine. I can imagine in my mind's eye. Somebody who's absolutely bound by the power of Satan. I I don't know if you would describe them as being demon-possessed or not, but whatever way you describe it, there's a person bound by the power of Satan. They're bound in their habits. They're bound in their personhood. They're bound in their personality. They're they're bound in their addictions. Whatever you want. They're bound by the power of Satan. I'll tell you what. Even though that person is in despair and they feel that the power of Satan is so powerful, the great news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ can swallow up that rod is that there's nothing mightier than the power of Jesus. And I think that sometimes people get deceived on that point because they see the impressive power of Satan. And ladies and gentlemen, the devil is powerful. He is. There's no doubt about it. But don't despair for a moment because the Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the world, is far more powerful than even satanic power. Well, this was a message that Pharaoh ignored, hardening his heart. So what happens? Verse 14 So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink the water of the river. Moses, that's what I want you to do. Go to Pharaoh bearing that message. Stand before the river and let Pharaoh know The Lord says, you haven't listened to me until now, so I'm going to keep hammering away. And now, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to strike the waters of the mighty Nile River, and I'm going to turn them to blood. So what happened? Well, you can imagine. Verse 19. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, 
Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the first of the plagues. There are nine plagues in total, plus a tenth. The tenth is in a category all its own. It was a plague upon the firstborn, and we'll talk about that soon enough. But it's sort of an interesting structure of the nine regular plagues, if I could call them that. They're set up in groups of three. The two are given with a warning, and the third is given no warning. This one was given a warning. Uh, Pharaoh, here's your opportunity to turn back. Pharaoh, here's your opportunity to repent. Would you do it? Pharaoh says, no, I won't do it. Then fine. The Nile is turned to blood. And you saw what it says there in verse 20. It says, all the waters that were in the river turned to blood. Now, there are some people who believe that all of these plagues that came upon Egypt have a naturalistic explanation. Did you know that there's something called, I think they call it the red tide of the Nile. You see, surrounding the Nile River, at least in many places, is this red earth. And during certain flood stages of the Nile, the the Nile floods up and gets this red earth into it, and it has a blood-like appearance. And people say, aha, that's what happened here. Well, I say, not so fast. Does the Red Nile explain why the water was undrinkable? Does the Red Nile phenomenon explain why all the fish died? Does the Red Nile phenomenon explain why it extended to all the waters in Egypt? Does the Red Nile phenomenon explain why Pharaoh's mind was blown? This is something that happened every few years. Pharaoh would yawn. No big deal. Instead, he rejected God and hardened his heart all over again. Now listen, God may or may not have used natural mechanisms to accomplish these plagues, but if he did, the timing and the character of the plagues come from God alone, because in each one of these plagues, God was answering the question, who am I? Every one of the plagues was directed against an Egyptian deity. Well, take the Nile River, for example. The Egyptian god, Kunum, was said to be the guardian of the Nile. So when the Nile turns to blood, it's like, Kunum, where are you? The the Egyptian god, Happy, was the spirit of the Nile. And he was brought low by the plague. Happy, where are you? You're sleeping on the watch. Yahweh's doing stuff to the Nile, and you can't do anything about it. The great god of the Egyptians, Osiris, was thought to have the Nile as his bloodstream. Osias, seems like you got some blood disease going on right now. You see, the Nile itself was worshipped as a god. And God was rebuking the idols of the Egyptians with this plague. Should have been a huge wake-up call to Pharaoh, but he resisted. By the way, just so you know, 
there is a significant mention of this in secular history. There's something called the Ipuwer Papyrus. It's from the same period, and it actually says, if you're looking this up in ancient Egyptian, it's the Apuwer Papyrus at chapter 2, portion 10. It says that the Nile was blood and undrinkable. And it also repeatedly mentions that servants left their masters in those days. And that's what's going to happen a little bit later on in the story, isn't it? So it's a remarkable attestation to this in history. But notice this. God brings this terrible judgment upon Egypt. It should have woken them up. It should have changed their attitudes. But look what happens, verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. What did the Egyptian magicians do? Well, they dug some wells and got some clean water from the aquifer. And they come before Pharaoh. They said, Pharaoh, you don't need to listen to Yahweh. You don't need to listen to Moses and Aaron. Look what we can do with this water. Here's this water that we've gotten from wells. Good, clean water. And what did they do? You saw what it did. Verse 22 says they did so with their enchantments. They turned it to blood. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's a water shortage in Egypt at this time, how smart is it to take good, fresh water and turn it into blood? Do you see how absurd this miracle is? If these enchantments were real, if they had real power, then what they really should have done was what? They should have turned the bloody water pure again. But they didn't. Do you know why? Because Satan has no power to do real good. Oh, he can do destructive things. He can take good, clean water and make it his blood. But can Satan ever bring purity where there's filth? Never. Can Satan ever bring uh, this great overcoming power where there's besetting weakness? Never. No, ladies and gentlemen, the power to do good, the power to redeem, the power to set free That's in the hands of God alone. But Pharaoh didn't listen. It tells us right here in verses 22 and 23. Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Neither was his heart moved by this. I wonder about that. And it's a good place for us to end this morning. What's going to move your heart? Don't you think you and I, if we could have a little sit down with Pharaoh here, we'd plead with him and say, please, Pharaoh, would you wake up to this? You're in a losing end of the equation. Pharaoh, honestly, your arms are too short to box with God. He's just going to get the best of you every time. Just give it up now. I know how the story ends, Pharaoh. Won't you understand this? Wouldn't the Lord in his own secret counsel, wouldn't he say the same thing to us? Wouldn't he say the same thing to you who, look, you're a good person, at least in some sense, but you're resisting God right now. Why don't you surrender? And I pray especially that this would be a wake-up call to anybody here this morning who somehow believes that things can get better in your life without the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, it's no problem to turn things into blood. It's no problem to mess things up. We all do pretty good at that in our life. The real miracle that we need from God is to make things pure again. 
and the power to take something that is stained and is crimson and to make it white as snow again, that power is found in the work that Jesus Christ did at the cross. Moses could expose the problem. He could show the blood that was all the way throughout the Nile. But it's only Jesus who can come to that which is messed up and say, I will make it whole. I will make it pure. I will make it clean again. This is a perfect moment for us to consider that just in a few moments, Pastor Nate Wagner is going to come up. He's going to lead us in communion. What a time for us to do this. To consider that this is, so to speak, blood that we will take that will make us pure, that will make us clean, that will do what all the magicians of Egypt could not do, but Jesus Christ has done because of his work on the cross. Look to him. Look to that. Don't hope for any refuge or hope in the powers of darkness, but look to Jesus for who he is and what he can do in your life. Father, that's my prayer for this this congregation, this wonderful group before me this morning now. I pray, God, that you would move upon their hearts and prepare them to receive from your table. That together, Lord, we would see that even though it's easy for the world and the flesh and the devil to mess things up, only Jesus can bring purity. Only Jesus can cleanse. And so we look to him now, especially to him and his great work on the cross for us. We prepare ourselves to receive at his table. We do it now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.